Welcome to the Reunion Belleville podcast, a place where everyday people apprentice to Jesus. We're glad you pulled up a seat and we hope that today's lead-in encourages you to take your next step. Good morning. It's Monday and I'm recording yesterday's lead-in because... We got a bit of bad weather over the weekend and it caused some of our families to not be able to be present and that included our Sunday school teachers. And so yesterday during church, our kids were invited to hang out with us upstairs. And that changed the way in which I was going to discuss this story in person. And that's a good thing. I love that our kids can hang out with us. I loved how well they did in regards to paying attention and interacting. But it does change the way in which we talk about things because it's about our context and having kids there changes our context. And so the way we speak should change to include everybody who's present. So today I do want to record what I would have said had it just been for us adults or for those of us who would just generally be hanging out in the upstairs sanctuary or venue space during the message. And so it's a story based on John chapter four. Again, I don't take too much Um, Yeah, I'm not trying to recreate anything here. I'm not trying to make this story uh, my own. I'm certainly not trying to make it anything less than what I believe it was supposed to be within the context of of, uh, the Mediterranean at that time. And so I'm going to add some information that our minds and our lives, so far removed from that context, we're probably going to miss. So I'm going to add some information, not for the sake of just adding to the story, but for the sake of helping us grasp a little bit about what was actually taking place. But again, it's found in John chapter 4. It's a famous story if you've grown up in the church, and if you haven't, I really do hope you enjoy it because it is one of my favorite stories about Jesus and a woman at the well. So here we go. I'm going to tell the story, and then I'm going to give you a couple points that I think are important from it, and I would love to hear what you think as well. But the sun beats down as noon closes in. Imagine You're in the Mediterranean, it's the late morning and the sun is just rising up into the heat of the day and um, there's a a warmth and, and heat that's just kind of building. And as you see this area, you're outside of a city called Sicker and there's a big well and as you're if, if you can imagine that in your mind, you can see the city walls or the city in the, in the near distance and in this large well where people would come to draw water. And as you're watching this well, you see a man and a group of students behind him because Jesus and his apprentices are finally approaching the city. Earlier that week, Jesus had heard the religious leaders were growing in anger at his baptisms. Yes, he began baptizing and actually giving permission to his apprentices to baptize people, just like John the Baptist was last week. But it was, it was creating a, a bit of a stir. The religious leaders were getting upset, and so Jesus said, we're going to leave Judea and we're going to head north to Galilee. Now, the most devout Jews would lead uh, or head north um, to Galilee by crossing the Jordan River in order to avoid the Samaritan areas. After all, the Samaritans, according to the context of this story, they were a mixed race with a mixed approach to faith and life. There was strife between Jews and Samaritans. And so any God-honoring Jew wouldn't enter that region, let alone the city. But Jesus, according to John, says, I have to go that way. And so now it's almost noon as the heat of the day increases as they approach the city. 
as Jesus draws close to the well, he, he takes a seat, but encourages the rest of the guys to go into town and find something to eat. Because it's noon. It's time for a meal. But it's noon and it's quiet. Because the morning rhythms of the day demanded that you get your water early. Sure, you need water all day, but the later you wait, the harder and in fact, the hotter it gets. The well might be quiet right now, but just hours before it was a place of hustle and bustle as local women gathered for water, but just as importantly, they gathered for conversations and they gathered for connection. But now Jesus at this quiet well at noon closes his eyes to catch a few moments of rest. A clank startles him back to awareness. <laughs> a lady trying to silently approach the well drops some of her belongings as she neared. It's noon and it's hot. As the woman approaches, she excuses herself with her covered head down, never making eye contact with Jesus, but Jesus makes contact with her asking, when you draw a drink, may I have some of that water? Caught off guard, the lady responds, why do you, a man, and a Jew ask me for water? You see, Jesus is breaking the rules and refusing the cultural customs because women speak to women and men speak to men. Sure, if, that, if you were family, that's fine, but customs are put in place to keep people in theirs. But on top of this, there's also the ethnic divisions, um, which is far worse than any gender, and breaking those regulations had even greater consequences, none of which this man Jesus seems to care about. But not even to mention the water. It's one thing to offer a glass of water here in our day, but it's another in a hospitality-based culture and community then as it is even now. A drink isn't as casual as you might expect. A drink was an invitation to more, more conversations, more connections, more shared experiences, because to ask for a drink was an invitation to a shared commitment, AKA, it was like saying, you are my people. Her, a woman and a man, her, a Samaritan and a Jew, her, who just so happens to be alone at the well at noon. She is more than just a little caught off guard. So Jesus presses. If you knew the gift of God and who was asking, give, you, give me a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. The echoed dreams of Old Testament prophets ring in her ears. Living water from a, a deep well within? After all, she's thirsty. It's hot and it's noon at the well. But she bites back. What makes you think your water is any better than my ancestor Jacob's? She's highlighting her birthright and place in and among God's people as though Jesus was reminding her of her forced place out. She's defensive and rightly so because again he smiles. And his gentleness and concern in that moment disarms her fiery tongue as he responds, everyone who drinks of this water is going to get thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I'm about to give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become a, a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. This isn't about your typical thirst. This isn't about this water and certainly no longer just about this well. And so if this is true, her only response can be, it must be, sir, give me this water so that I never will be thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw water. Here? She means at noon, she means alone because she is alone and cut off from the crowd, the ladies and her customs and all those connections. 
She's thirsty and she's here for a reason, forced to be different because look, it's noon at the well. And yet Jesus presses again. Go get your husband. Her head snaps up and the curiosity is replaced by shame and rage. I don't have one, she barks. Jesus' gentleness, gentleness doesn't leave his face. Even his words that he knows could wound, but aren't meant to leave his lips. That's right. You've had five and the man you're with now isn't your husband at all. She turns away, mumbling almost. She must be some sort of prophet, mocking as hints of sadness indicate her reputation again precedes her. Adultery? Disowned? Left? Thrown out? We don't know. Maybe she burnt the toast too many times. Maybe she's unable to have a baby. Maybe she was taken advantage of or lost her way. But what we do know is that she's lost her community as she's been forced out by herself or... In light of her reputation, she chooses, sadly, to be out and by herself because it's noon at the well. She responds, what you've said is true. And your people say I can't worship here anyways. I have to go to Jerusalem where, again, you'd keep me out. What difference does it make who I'm with or what I do? Because the rules are the rules. I gave up on religion a long time after it had already given up on me. Woman, Jesus interjects, the hour is here right now where you can worship God anywhere in that city or on this mountain. God will draw close to anyone looking for God, looking for truth. The Spirit will lead you. That's all that matters. Doubting, she responds, I'd rather wait for the Messiah. He will tell us what's what. He'll tell us what's right. Jesus, looking directly into her eyes now, says, I am him. Just then, another clamor breaks out as the apprentices drop their gear in disbelieving interruption that their teacher is speaking to a woman, to a Samaritan, who by now is blushing and retrieving her empty cans to run into town. On the way, she stops by the women and she shares, A man is here. Can it be the Messiah? Because he has told me everything that I have done. He's told me everything that I have done. Come, come and meet him. Back at the well, Jesus tells his apprentices as they hand him some bread, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months from now we'll have a harvest? But I tell you, look around, the harvest is right now. God has already been at work. You know the old saying, one plants and another harvest? You didn't do the work, but we're all going to enjoy the harvest. And so Jesus and his apprentices stayed in the Samaritan city for two more days, and many more people believed in Jesus, that he was the Messiah because of the woman's testimony and much, much more. The end. Welcome to Reunion and our fourth week discussing the Holy Spirit. We began this series by asking a question, do you stay calm in the midst of chaos? Because Jesus has this wonderful and yet, hmm, idea when uh, he speaks to his apprentices and he says, I'm going to give you the spirit who will guide you into truth. And he gives us this spirit who engages the chaos because in week two, we discussed how the spirit has no problem hovering over and into and onto the chaos. In fact, the Holy Spirit is in you for you and on you for everyone else. The chaos in your life 
can be calm. The chaos around you can be calm as we learn to open our lives to the power, the anointing, and the leading of the Spirit. In fact, Jesus is the example of what life open in in connection to the Spirit can be. Someone who, in the midst of internal chaos, continued to trust God. Someone who, in the midst of external chaos, can say no to some issues and yet give his best yes to others. Jesus is a non-anxious presence in the world at chaos. And when when I see these stories, when I read these stories, I want that life. I want that experience. I want to follow the way of Jesus to experience the life of Christ in me, for me, but on me for everyone else. And this is part of our vision as a church, our planned identity of who we are and are becoming, non-anxious people in the presence of inner and outer chaos. We are learning to open our lives to the power and leading of the Spirit. But what does this story of a woman at a well have to teach us about God, ourselves, the church, and our place in the chaos of our communities? What does Jesus and a woman at the well have anything to do with the movement of the Holy Spirit today? The first thing that is drawn to my attention is when John says that Jesus has to go into Samaria. The has to can mean must, like a necessity as it applies to duty, command, or purpose. Last week we read about how Jesus received his anointing as a sign of his personal and communal acceptance of his identity and purpose. It's one thing to have the Holy Spirit. It's another to accept it. It's one thing to have a purpose. It's another to act in light of it or in duty to that response. Therefore, Jesus must. It's a necessity. It's a, it's a duty. Not in the negative, I must do this because it's my job, but I have to because it's who I am. It's what I do. It's like when I found out that I was going to be a father. The idea of a father is less than a title and certainly always more a way of being, acting, and living in the world. I'm not called daddy because I participated in the creation of a human, but more so because I have taken responsibility, accepted my duty and my purpose as a father to my children. This is who I am. It's what I must do. I must be daddy. I I can't help it. The beauty of Jesus' duty in response to the Spirit is that he must go into Samaria. Jesus, and therefore God's identity, purpose, and lifestyle, is rooted in being sent. In this story and many more in the gospel accounts of life illustrate how the Spirit's moving takes Jesus to the margins. The Spirit's moving in Jesus' life compels him, makes him reach out, go out, seek the people on the margins. Now, we don't have time this morning or today on Monday to get into the history and structure as to why these people are out, but Jesus is guided towards those who are forced out for the sake of religion. Jesus has very little patience or willingness to adhere to the structures of segregation created by God's people. He has to go. God has to go where we force people to be. And I absolutely love that. God has to go where we have forced people to be. And so as a church, what does it look like for us to join that missional movement of the Spirit to go where maybe it's culture, maybe it's even the church has forced people to be? Should we not be there with our Jesus? Should we not be there as well? Because the second note is that the apprentices follow. They knew the rules. They knew the regulations and rituals of their religion and their culture. They knew the risk, and yet they submitted their reputation. Now, it was already on thin ice. But these were larger and more consequential actions. The 
to follow Jesus to the margins was to leave their reputation and, and place within their own community behind. It was going to cost them something, and it did. And it doesn't mean that they got it right away, right? Like, we see the interaction. We see their disbelief. But it meant that they were willing to follow Jesus and learn as they went. They were willing to place themselves aside for the sake of their rabbi. And so are we willing to do the same? Experience always precedes explanation when it comes to following Jesus. He's not going to explain, and often we don't have time to as well, certainly to understand everything the Spirit is trying to do. Our responsibility or our pleasure in responding to the Spirit's leading is to to follow and allow the experience of what God is doing to lead to explanation or maybe to even not leave room for it. Because some of the things that God is doing, I just, I can't get my head around. I don't fully understand it, but it's still an experience that I've had. I can't explain it to other people necessarily, but by following the Spirit, there's something happening and I want to be a part of it. As a church, I pray that we want to be a part of it regardless of our reputation, regardless of what's going to come with it, that we would submit and follow wherever the Spirit would lead. Which brings us to this third idea that the apprentices are shocked, as we should be, at the fact that God sits with a Samaritan woman at the well at noon. We should be shocked because it's a big deal. And so here at Reunion, we say this all the time, but I want to say it again and again, that your sin does not separate you from God. If we did, we are all without hope. Sin does not separate us from God because it did not separate this woman from Jesus. Jesus isn't impressed with sin. He's not deterred by sin. Sin is not a barrier to God's presence because if it was again, where would we all be? You see, I was told growing up that God can't see me because of my sin, so I need Jesus to stand in front of me. And yet here in this story, and in many more, we see Jesus still seeing this woman, engaging with this woman, offering himself to this woman. Your sin does not separate you or anyone else from God. And when I say sin, we don't know her story. It can be something that was done to her. It can be something she was participating in. With, but nonetheless, it's a wound. It's something that's decreasing her, uh, her value in herself. It's, it's marred her identity. And so it might be something that's done to you or it might be something you participate in, but nonetheless, Jesus sees you in the midst of it and is willing to engage you. He's, he's seeking. It does not separate you from the presence of God. Your sin does not separate you from the presence of God, but it can certainly stand in the way of the presence of God. Which brings us to this final point, or second last point, I guess. Jesus has no problem being close to somebody stuck in their sin, but he also has no problem offering this person healing. Jesus has no problem offering her what she was created to receive and experience, but Jesus has no problem identifying what hurts it or hinders it or draws her away from that experience. Jesus has no problem saying, come close and let, but let's deal with what has pushed or maybe even forced you out. This is what reconciliation looks like. It's not just a matter of let's be close and ignore what's taking place, but let's be close and deal with what's hindering or harming. You see, I've had a number of doctors in my life, and some of them have been nice, and some of them have been not so nice. But regardless, I've always left the doctor's office satisfied because they told me the truth. I've never once had a doctor who's identified an area of concern and kept it to themselves. They've never beat around the bush, tried to water it down, or even sometimes, and it can sound harsh, but some of them have never even tried to soften the blow. 
Doctors tell you the truth because they have to. They have to tell you the truth. Sharing medical truth, no matter what it is, is who they are. It's what they, sh- it's what they swore that they would do. And thank God they do it because if it's bad or good, I, I want to know. I might not want to know, but I need to know because my life or the health of my life as a, a husband, a father, a pastor, um, my own life as just somebody who enjoys being out, I need to know. It can depend on it. Jesus in other stories refers to himself as a doctor, and in almost every story we see him and we find him sharing potentially life-saving, if not just life-altering news. It's not always what people want to hear, but it's always what they need to hear. And Jesus shares this truth with the woman, not as a means of putting her down, but as an invitation to a way of life that would see that she is healed. He's not saying these things just for the sake of pointing out sin, but in order to offer healing and reconciliation and redemption. It's not about sin, it's about an invitation to healing. And I believe that the still small voice or leading of the voice of God can be experienced in your life right now through the Holy Spirit. That there is a physician still present in your in your in yourself that you are a host of the holy spirit and that great physician is just as much a part of you as it was in front of this woman if we're open are we open to the spirit gently pressing into us the truth about ourselves it might be a wound that has been done to us it might be something that we've buried it might be something that we've we've buried it might be something that um we have been participating in Maybe there's an inner thirst that you can't define, a longing you've been trying to quench at the wrong well. I trust. And as a community, we're, again, learning to trust and open ourselves up to that, to that small voice that would say, yes, yes, draw close. Yes, come near. But in doing so, can we deal with this? This thing that happened to you last week or this thing that happened to you 10 years, it's still lingering there. It's still, still affecting the way that which you see yourself. It's still affecting the way in which you see God, yourself, others, maybe the way in which you participate or live your life. And so it's one thing to acknowledge those things. It's another to have this, this inner thirst quenched where this river can be a balm to our soul that the Holy Spirit would offer us a drink. Would we be open this week and even this, this day to listen and respond to that voice? Which does bring us to the final, the final note, is that we as a community are intentionally stripped down in some ways in order to be more, um, uh, not irrelevant, that would be the wrong word, but we do want to be, um, we do want to just be a type of church that everyday people can attend. We want to be a place where an avenue or a venue, a style of community that it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what you do, we're not going to put restrictions in place. We're not going to put barriers or even doctrinal statements in place that say this is what you must do or have to do or believe in order to be a part of us. We do want to create an environment that relies on the Holy Spirit where we can be open and honest with each other and trust that the Holy Spirit will continue to guide us into truth about ourselves, about each other, about the image of God that we have and where it should be tweaked or altered, if not completely deconstructed and reconstructed. In our structures, we want to continue to hold those out lightly and say, okay, as a church, what does it look like for us to be led by the spirit of truth so that we can worship and be 
uh, this, this community that allows people at any stage of their life to join and be a part of what we're doing as they as we, join us as we apprentice to Jesus. So again, as we come into a new year, I know it's crazy to think that this year is already ending, but as we come into this new year, your leadership team, and we're inviting you to be a part of this, what does it look like for us as a church to continue to ask, how are we loving Belleville? What does it look like for us to be a city or a church within a city here in Belleville? What does it look like for us to meet on Sundays downtown? What does it look like for us to, to be in this space at this time? What does it look like for us to engage with our neighbors in a way that's that's important for them? Are we creating avenues and in, in ways in which we can connect with people that are actually connecting with people? Or are we creating barriers in the way that we speak or the way that we act? And some of that's okay if it means that um, we're being authentic and we're following the Spirit. But some of it can't just be for the sake of our own safety or our own comfort. We need to be stretched and be willing to follow. So as we consider this story, there's a whole bunch of stuff and I would love for you to share your comments and your reflections. But as you consider your own life, if Jesus was to be sitting with you alone in an open space this, this afternoon even, what do you think the Holy Spirit would be saying to you? And how would you respond? Thank you for listening to today's lead-in. We pray that you were able to learn something about Jesus today, but equally important, we pray that you sense a step you might take in response. What would it look like for you to live with Jesus today in light of our discussion? You can learn more about our community at www.reunionbelleville.com and we're always here to walk with you.